Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Steven Spielberg's new historical drama, The Post, which tells the story of how Ben Bradley and Katherine Graham, the first female publisher of The Washington Post, risked their careers and their freedom when they decided to report on the classified Pentagon Papers, a collection of documents released by Daniel Ellsberg, revealing a massive cover-up of government secrets that spanned three decades. In addition to The Post, Mr. Spielberg's numerous credits include the feature films 1941, Jurassic Park, Catch Me If You Can, Lincoln, and Bridge of Spies. He won the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for The Color Purple, Schindler's List, and Saving Private Ryan, and was nominated for the DGA Award for Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Empire of the Sun, Amistad, and Munich. Mr. Spielberg was honored with the DGA Lifetime Achievement Award in 2000 and currently serves on the DGA National Board. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Spielberg spoke with director Patty Jenkins about filming The Post. During their conversation, Mr. Spielberg talks about how making the film was a social imperative for him, finding the hidden drama within a scene, and why there's no need to cut during a master featuring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. I agree. Um, and even when I knew that I was Thank coming you. here, I was like, God, what a lucky audience. Lucky me that I get to listen to the answer, but lucky audience too. Um, thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to get to I, talk I to you about this. I love that you're this. doing this because, you know, I loved Wonder Woman so much. And I was thank so you. honored. That, thank you. Thank you, know. you. Thank you, guys. Well, I was just saying to Stephen backstage, what's, what's super great about doing it this year for me is, I, I, I listen, I've grown up. There's very few moments in one's life where one can say, you know, if I had introduced you, I would have said, you know, I, I could actually say, I think maybe the greatest filmmaker of all time, which is pretty incredible. Um, but I, and, and so I've always been influenced, but I've never been influenced more than I was when I made Wonder Woman. Because when I went into it, I thought how you have made so many movies of so many genres that, um, but particularly blockbusters that totally transcend, you know, being just a movie about X, Y, or Z. So I thought about you all the time. Well, thank you, because Wonder Woman does blend so many different genres within one film, uh, including something that we share in common with this film, which is uh, the empowerment of women. Absolutely. And, and that's another funny thing, because the no man scene, uh, land scene in Wonder, Wo in Wonder Woman, so many people would always come up to me and say, when I saw that scene, it reminded me of 
this woman or that woman or this person. And when I saw your film, I was like, wow, this is like a real Wonder Woman. You know, it's like a real story of an actual Wonder Woman. Meryl would love that. Yeah. That's great. It, it felt like it. So um, my first question is like how, it's the obvious one. What, what was it about this story? I mean, I love that you have applied to so many different movies, different types of stories, a universal message. What was it about this story that, that drew you to it? Because I know when you originally read it, you weren't reading it to do it yourself. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, when um, when I find a subject I'm really interested in talking about on film, it sometimes it takes me, as everybody knows, years. I mean, years. Tintin took 30 years. To Schindler's List took 12 years. Sometimes it takes such a long time uh, for a lot of reasons for me to get to the point where I'm ready to make the make the movie. I don't do anything based on the spontaneous combustion of excitement, but I had been in such a kind of rut over what's been going on in the country since, you know, what happened. And, and I don't have a Facebook account. I don't have a Twitter account. I'm not on Snapchat. I just text and email. That's it. That's all I've got. If I, if I want to say something to the world, I, like, call Marvin Levy and he had contacts the Associated Press. And that's it. The AP is how I get a message out. That's it. It's the old-fashioned analog way, right, of communication. Yeah. Uh, but when Liz Hanna, 31 years old, who had never written before and sold the script on spec um, to the White Brothers and then to, um, then to Amy Pascal and then to Fox, Stacey Snyder, when Stacey and Amy encouraged me to read the script, I didn't want to do it because I was right in the middle of post-production on Ready Player One. But I got to page 30, and I realized, oh, my God, this is going to be like 120 This would be the 120-page character tweet in one script. I mean, this is, this is something that I just felt it, it, it was almost a, a social imperative and, and, and in, in two respects. The first respect obviously being our First Amendment protection rights, the newspaper under withering broadside attack by the Nixon administration, the New York Times, and then the Washington Post. And then Catherine Graham, who in her own boardroom as the publisher of this local, in those days, a local paper, because the Washington Star was bigger than the Washington Post in 71, she couldn't even get her own board members to talk to her. They're looking right through her to the other guy on the other side. There are so many things that struck chords all in the same breath of a screenplay that I literally went to, and there was another little movie I was trying to get off the ground about a kidnapping of a six-year-old boy in Italy, and I had a whole crew in Italy looking at locations. And I gave the script to Christy Macosco, who's been with me for 20 years, and has produced a lot of my recent films. And she read the script, and she said, yeah, you have to do this now. You have to do this right now. And I said, I, I know you're right, but how? And then she kind of said, um, look, I'm the producer. You're the director. Leave it to me. And the next thing I knew, my appointment book was shattered. I had, instead of four things to do that day, I had 40 things to do every day. But Tom and Merrill and everybody else that, in solidarity, decided to work together to tell the story. It was incredible. When you really have a mission or a goal, it's insane how quickly you can get things done. We ca thanks to Ellen Lewis, uh, every first choice that I wanted to be in all these, it's, it's, a, it's one of my favorite ensemble casts, this movie, and, and, and everybody was available. That's the most, that's the hard, we know as directors and, and ADs and PMs, we all know that it's rare when everybody's available. Everybody had a window of time they could 
do this picture, and that was the miracle. And somehow this got got going in time. We shot the movie in eight and a half months, meaning from the time I read the script to the time I finished the answer print was about nine months, nine oh months, God. the whole thing. That's so amazing. it can be done. It can be done. You know. Okay, so that's fascinating because so how so having worked on huge and smaller movies, and obviously in the big ones you have previs and you know like all of these different long moments of process and you're known for being a great shop maker in so many ways visually uh it was interesting to me when i was reading about your process on the film how many of you were in a lot of the research meetings like when you went to the you went to the post and listened to them talk but like a bunch of you were there how did approaching this that quickly with this group of people change your process I think our process was changed when we went to the Washington Post and they let us sit in on the, on the, on the 9 a.m. meeting. And of course, in the old days, they only had a couple of meetings a day because they just had to get out two papers. Now they have to refresh every 10 minutes. And so it's constant meeting on, on breaking news, constantly coming into the Post. I, I presume every, you know, both print and digital paper in, in the country. And we saw how fast the floor worked and how quickly they got stories and they were able to get, get them written and get, and get them sourced and get them confirmed. And we felt, all of us felt, can our movie have the same energy as the two and a half hours we spent at the Washington Post? If I could, I kept thinking, if I could infuse that kind of energy that I'm observing at the Post into the film, uh, uh, you know, we could, the, the film could also be entertaining, you know. Uh, so, so that really helped us it gave it, the esprit de corps in a newspaper office is insane when you see how they put stories together. In a way, it's what we do putting a film together. But on this condensed schedule, this compressed schedule, we all felt more like reporters than we did like, um, you know, filmmakers taking our time to get it right. We got it right, but you don't have to do thirty takes to get it right. You know, yeah, not with Meryl and Tom. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's also, I mean, that was one of my favorite things about the film is I, I, I don't know why I would think this because obviously the newspaper industry is, is, is what you're saying. But I was amazed how exciting it was where I was like gripping my seat, like what's going to, huh? Which you don't expect about anything that you know historically to be sort of an intellectual debate. Like you just don't expect that aspect of it. So I, I loved that. Um, did it change, like, was there anything about it that changed how you worked with the actors or how you came up with shots? You know, the, the, because I didn't have time to put together what I, you would call this, there was no reason to previs anything anyway, you know, um, on something like this, because this is sort of like uh, in theater, or, or in television, or in film. One of my favorite directors, okay, is Sidney Lumet. He's one of my favorite directors. I, of all the directors that I could give some credit to, to inspire and influence my work on this film, it would be Sidney. It would be what he did with 12 Angry Men. 12 men sitting around a room. I'd love to see 12 Angry Women someday do that play, because that, that, you know, you, it, it's, it's not really genre, it's not really gender dependent, that, that play. But when I saw what he did with the camera to open up a very, very, you know, like a, it was like a, it was like a, almost a two act play. Uh, it, it's just it's just breathtaking what he did with the camera in a very subtle way. So I look more to Lamette movies to inform me. How can I make this exciting and visual with a lot of shots, a lot of coverage? I did a lot of steady cam because the newsroom floor is always everybody's moving and, and throwing things in. Of course, in the old days, they were throwing newspapers back and forth, and, and they were just there were runners all over the floor, couriers, messengers. Today, you, you just hit send. It, it doesn't have that kind of flash anymore, but it did have that kind of flash. 
And that's what I thought we could capture if I could use the Steadicam more than just conventional dolly track on a film like this. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Now, do you do you always pick other films and filmmakers for any? Not always. Not, not always. No, no. I mean, I'm not always. I don't pick. I mean, a lot of people. You know, when I made Warhorse, a lot of people said, "Were you influenced by John Ford?" And I, I said, "Well, I, no." And they said, "Well, you had to be because every shot was a John Ford shot." And I said. I said, what does that mean? Well, every shot was perfectly composed. And I said, you mean all my other films, my shots aren't perfectly composed? <laughs> <laughs> I try to compose things. <laughs> That's so funny, because I think you, oh, you're one of the great composers. That's so great. I, 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 like, I like balance in the frame. Yeah, you know, I love balance in the frame, and that's why I love David Lean, and I love you know, Wes Anderson, and I love the kind of balance that they can achieve. But sometimes sloppy is good. Sometimes sloppy is, you can get more authenticity through sloppy camera work than you can by everything being perfectly composed, which is why on the post, I just wanted the camera moving. Uh, it, 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 there was a whole scene where Tom and you know, Ben Bradley and all the guys are, are in there trying to figure out how are we going to take the New York Times cover story and steal every word, but, but, but juxtapose the words to what sounds like, in other words, the source was the New York Times. They got scooped. Everybody did. So the scene was supposed to take place in Bradley's office trying to figure out above the fold, or they, they said, well, take the New York Times reference. We have to reference that we're getting all this information from the Times. Put it below the fold because people put the headline on top and the fold goes on the coffee stain. So let's do it that way. That was a pretty cool scene. It was all written that way. But I realized that the drama of that scene was not what was happening in Bradley's office. It was the guy that got this McCann, Paul McCann's shoebox, right. you know, yeah. that my daughter gave him, <laughs> Sasha. That shoebox? Yeah, that was Sasha. It was funny because yeah. I'm I'm doing something right now that takes place in '65, and I particularly got fixated on your shoebox because I've been thing. having to pick shoeboxes, right. and I was like, "That shoebox? I think that's like our shoebox. That was a great well, shoebox." It, it actually came in a shoebox. It was we kind of we fudged it and called it a McCann shoebox, but it did come in a shoebox, and it was 200 pages of the McNamara study. And, uh, and I thought it was more interesting, the reaction of the staff editor on the floor getting the shoebox and then being so afraid of Ben Bradley, so afraid to inter interrupt his meeting, he went to the next guy around the corner to get him to give it to Bradley. Bradley was a great, great... I knew Bradley. We were neighbors for 15 years uh, on Long Island. My house was here and his house was here. And the film's dedicated to Nora Ephron and her house was here. So it was a little triangle. And um, and by the way, this is a film that that had Nora lived. She would have directed this picture, not me. I'm I'm sure of that. I'm sure of that. Yeah, she would have loved it. Yeah. Um, how is that making something about people that you have known? It, it's only I've. It's the first time I've ever made a picture about somebody I've known. I mean, Ben Bradley wasn't like my closest friend, but he was a really warm acquaintance. He and Sally Quinn for many years. And it's the first time I've ever made about somebody I've known. Now I've made two other films about living characters. I made. Catch Me If You Can, and I got to spend time with Frank Abagnale Jr., and I made, um, uh, then I made Bridge of Spies, and I got to know Gary Powers Jr., and I got to know the family of James B. Donovan. And there's a higher, there's a higher bar of effort and, of, and responsibility to, because they have to live with your interpretation of their interpretation of what they live first person. I'm a third person director, making a story about a first-person family in a, in a first-person experience. So it really is important that we got it right. So that's why we spent time, at least on the post, with Don Graham, the son of, of, of Catherine, Lally, 
you know, Weymouth Graham, the daughter, Stephen Graham, uh, uh, and everybody at the Post. And and the the person who came in to do the rewrites is, is a singer is a guy Josh Singer who wrote Spotlight, and he came in and did an amazing. He was on the set every day along with Liz Hanna, and it was incredible because he's the guy that jumped into the research and he spent two weeks doing nothing but figuring out what was the real story. That kept changing as we shot the movie because they kept coming. And then this happened on Monday. This whole story takes place in really ten days when the IPO was launched and the New York Times. And then Nixon and joining the New York Times. That happened like in 10 days. So it happened so quickly that the information was coming into us through Josh from the people who lived those days. And so the script was changing every single day. Wow. And, and, I, and I, I have to say, I particularly enjoyed that Catherine Graham stayed the character that she was, that there was, there was plenty of evidence. And, you know, I loved like an interview where, where Meryl was talking about how doubt, how full of doubt she was as a person, but I loved that that was preserved as it was. And yet, and yet it didn't stop at all. Uh, the portrait of her being such a badass in that moment and so steely and so strong. And it was what made it great. And I think that oftentimes it's what I, I've always had the complaint that female characters don't get that complexity oftentimes. So I thought that was a wonderful thing about it. No, thank you. It was a watershed moment for Catherine Graham because she had, you know, she was a legacy child. You know, she had Eugene, her father, she had Phil, her her husband, the paper didn't go to her, and she was happy it didn't go to her. She loved her husband and loved his 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 intellect and his 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 leadership so much. She was happy he got the paper. She wasn't prepared to be the publisher after his his death, um, but um, she had that strength all the time in her. But she was in a world where she wasn't getting the kind of support from the majority. I mean, today we have you know we have a power minority in this country. You know, they call it the power minority, 49% men, 51% women. But then it was, it, was, it was a little bit different. And she just didn't think she needed to rock the boat. And so she often deferred. And she finally realized that the, 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 the time to defer was going to be over for the rest of her life when she made this decision. And she, it changed her. And it changed the post. And I'll tell you an interesting thing. We, all of us, including people at the New York Post, don't believe that had they not, had Catherine Gray not had, you know, the conviction, the courage of her convictions to say, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's publish. Had she not said that, uh, and the New York Times ran with this and history would have been made. They won the Pulitzer, not the Times won the Pulitzer, not the Post. Um, that Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley both would not have given such latitude to Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward to pursue the money trail to have, that eventually impeached and then got Nixon to resign, that wouldn't have been the case unless they had had this success. So it changed really the history of that paper. That's pretty incredible to think about like that small decision or, or in the absence of that decision, what would have followed. And and the, the amount of respect of she achieved, the amount of respect that she got after that, it changed everything. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, okay, so here's an, uh, another thing. One of, one of the other things I, I delight about in your movies is how watchable they are. And I found it again on this one. And oftentimes it's the oddest 
choices that make it that way. So first of all, I'm going to ask if you're a Mr. Show fan because I was an obsessive Mr. Show fan. And I couldn't believe the two of them were there. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. I so want to laugh, but I yet I couldn't help myself. I, I, I'm, I'm not they that, were great. I'm not that cool. I'm not that cool. I, 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 I well, never you heard, watch I it. never heard of Mr. Show. <laughs> I... I like I like back, I like uh, Bob Odenkirk from Breaking Bad, yeah. and from Saul, yeah. you know, but I didn't know that. So when I hired um, David Cross, uh, I remember Christy was pretty hip, and she said, "Oh, you know, they're they're partners in a comedy show, really, <laughs> really," and I had already put the offer out to both of them. But um, but you pulled it off. It was not distracting. Yeah. Listen, it's not. It wasn't such a huge yeah. show that everybody in the world remembers. But still, I loved seeing even the two of them side by right. side in Ben Bradley's oh, office. Right. And I was like, I can't believe this is happening. They're back. They're back. They're <laughs> there back. they are, doing a great job. Yes. But so how how do you approach like? Uh, there's the story. There's visually how to tell the story, but then you have such a great skill at making even the boring moments one has to get through kind of delightful and interesting. How, how do you go about that and how conscious of that are you? Well, I was really concerned about the first boring moment. And please, if, if Josh or Liz are in the audience, I forgive me. Your script wasn't boring, but there were a few things that dragged a little bit, okay? A few things. And... And to be able to solve a few of those problems, the one thing that really helped was to have such great actors in the movie. And, and the first scene that was important, it was the breakfast between the first time you see Ben Bradley and Catherine Graham together in a film, it's a breakfast scene. And, uh, and it was the first time they had worked together. We had saved, uh, um, we shot this not in continuity, but we didn't shoot anything before that involved both uh, Tom and Merrill until that breakfast scene. That was the first time that I believe they appeared on screen together. And so it was exciting and scary for both of them that day. And they came onto the set, and Meryl was really nervous, and, she, and I shot the master first, and she walks into the room, and she, her briefcase knocks over a chair. And she, she goes, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she puts the chair back up, and she sits down and starts the scene. On the next take, she didn't knock down the chair. And I said, why didn't you knock down the chair? She said, that was an accident. I said, no, 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 take three. Let's put it back in. So... 12 takes, she knocked the chair down for 12 takes, and that was maybe one little thing, but when they started getting loose with the scene, and I covered, I spent the whole day shooting it, I covered it from like numerous angles, but at the end of the day, when I got to the end of the day, and the whole afternoon was the coverage, and the whole morning were the masters, when I got to the end of the day, I realized they were so comfortable with each other, take 12, there was, I, for me, I said, this is playing like, you know, like, Spencer Tracy and, and Catherine Hepburn, why cut? Why, why even use any of the coverage? So I played that entire scene in a master, and I think that's what helped it really cook. Because then the audience, because you know, when we cut to a close-up, when any of us, we're editorializing. We're, the second we make a cut, we're making a statement. And, because, and, and we all know why we're making the cut, and the audience subliminally is supposed to feel the purpose of the cut, but it's totally editorializing. And I thought, why don't we let the audience do the editorializing? Let them choose who they're most compelled to listen to and to watch the most by not involving coverage. And so that was just an example of how I think that scene cooks better in a three-minute sustained master just with the two characters talking than it did when I saw the first cut, which was all coverage. That's fascinating. And I, I'm, I feel like I'm learning, I'm doing a thriller, uh, a sort of noirish thriller right now. And... It was interesting. I was watching a lot of Hitchcock 
to, to prepare for it. And my son, who's nine, started sitting and watching it with me, not at all, hasn't had like a super great film education or anything. But I was amazed at the him watching Hitchcock and, you know, Vertigo, someone will be walking for a long, long time. And my son was like, What's going to happen, mommy? You know, and I was like, God, amazing. After all these years, there's nothing dated about it. You, you, you're watching the lack of cutting right. is working in your favor. It's amazing. It, it, and the director gets credit for it, too. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so you, sh and you shoot on film. I, I have think I shoot on film, too. I shot Wonder Woman on film. It made a huge difference for me. W what is it that you, that has, you, you've, you've been so forward- uh, thinking on so many elements of technology, but this is one you've you're, you're resisting. Well, well, the thing that I'm sad about is even though I'm shooting on film, all of our films are uh, are converted to digital DCP, and th that's sent to, out to the theaters. You know, um, and so you're not really seeing pure film anymore, even though it's it's the 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 origin story is a film story, and I love film because of grain, because I think that when you have a let's say you have an insert. Of, of silverware on a play setting, and you're sitting right about one third close to the screen, closer than the back. Everybody in the first, you know, five ten rows, it's alive. the 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 still life is alive because the grain is giving a kind of breath of inanimate objects. It's letting an an, an inanimation breathe. It's pretty amazing to see the how alive film is compared to digital which is, for me, the difference between French Impressionist painting on oils and acrylic illustration art. Yeah. You know, digital is like acrylic illustration art. Um, and, and I much prefer film. But the only thing that I, I, I caution all of us about is it still doesn't look like film unless you put the reels up in the booth and you project it on the screen. Then you get the real film effect. And, and thank goodness we have filmmakers in our guild that are still insistent on running film in booths, like 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 you know Chris Nolan and Quentin Tarantino, you know, um, really insisting that these projectors travel. There's only 90 70 millimeter projectors left, but whenever you make a movie, these 90 projectors are available for installation in a theater near you. <laughs> <laughs> They're there. Yeah, I know. Long, long may they, you know, last yeah. doing it. Um, and I was amazed, even though I really felt like I got the benefit of the of the of the film when it did go to DCP. Something does change. Something does change. There, yeah. And I also found that there was a, a motion effect, like a stutter in the motion effect. But yeah, I, I hope I hope uh, all young filmmakers, you know, work on film and see the difference. And I find it's like it is in that painterly thing too, particularly something with period like this. I feel like it the veneer. It's almost like a veneer over all of it that seals it into being a piece of art versus a lot of the digital stuff transcends that and comes into reality. And now it looks like a set. Like I can see that quality, you know. Um, oh my God, I haven't had to look at this one time because I've just oh. been so interested <laughs> in all of your, uh, in, in, in everything that we were talking about. So um, here's one. What, what, like, have, has your, have your ambitions as a director 
obviously they've changed since you were such a young kid making your own films. But how, how, how do they change as it relates to things like this and the difference that you can make in the world? And when, when, did, that, when, when did that aspect of filmmaking show up? And, and what are your aspirations now as a filmmaker? Well, you know, I, I think the whole, you know, the whole, for me, changeover to, uh, you know, drama from, from, from uh, you know, a kind of conceptual, you know, conceptual stories. When I say conceptual, I mean Close Encounters is a concept, Jaws is a concept, the Indiana Jones films are a concept, E.T. is a concept. But the first time I saw the power in just drama without concept was when I made E.T., and even and, and, and when E.T. is not even in the room, I really realize, oh, my God, these kids are giving me such amazing interplay and, and reality and authenticity and drama. And I, I, was, and I remember when Francois Truffaut was working with me on Close Encounters, uh, and I, he was watching me direct this little three-year-old boy, Kerry Guffey, and he came over to me. So I just made a film called, I guess it's called, I guess the English title is Small Change. And he said, you really should do a film just with kids. Part of the reason I made E.T. the way I made it was because of what Truffaut said to me. And he said, you really should just do a movie with kids. And after that, I got more interested in doing films more about characters than concept. The concept was always there. But, so I guess the first real adult movie, I think E.T.'s my first adult movie, but I, there's art, people will, will argue against that. But I think Color Purple was probably the first one for me. That was the first one with no special effects at all. And, and and then, you know, as I've gotten older, I have seven kids and four grandkids. As I've gotten older, I, I, I realized, you know, that as much as I want my kids to laugh and scream and hide their eyes and be entertained, at the same time, I want them to take something from the experience that has some kind of value to them, some sort of perspective on history, something that really happened. And the fact that history writes great, the greatest stories. I mean, the greatest stories are told you know, you know, you know, by all of us in our lives, not so much often by an author that is creating something that they never experienced. Yeah, I, I, that reminds me of this quote. I saw you say this recently, and I thought this was so great. Uh, quote, you, I don't think of, uh, as an actor you have to identify with the character you're playing. You just need to find relevant and metaphoric comparisons to the person that you're playing. And you find it a fallacy that actors have to be who they play. What I love about that is that... I think the reason that I'm interested in filmmaking and something I see so beautifully done in your work is that the bell in, uh, the bell of life and the life experience is fairly universal. And having nothing in common with the character, the struggles, the struggles that they face, we all face on some level or another. Uh, how much do you think about that universality consciously when it comes to characters or are you just feeding off of your own interest? I think there is a universality of characters. I think there's something we can all relate to. I think in Wonder Woman, there was a universality in the way the Am the Amazon women, uh, as as much as they were in conflict with when to train, when not to train, uh, they had patience, and they all came to a kind of fair and equitable decision, and they did it together by having conversation, talking about it, where all the men in your movie are always knocking into each other and clashing and shooting each other and all of that. And it was an amazing contrast with the interaction of the men with the, with the patience of the women. And I think sometimes that just that sort of a choice comes from just 
what you observe in your life, right? It's what I observe in my life. And, and you know, I cannot tell, an, I can't make an actor a better actor. I don't know any director. Maybe Mike Nichols could do that. But, 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 um, you know, I don't think that's true. I, I, but anyway, what, well, <laughs> but I'm, I'm saying because I, I, yeah. I was raised. I've had three younger sisters. Every single person that's run my company has been a woman. I had a very strong mom, so that's sort of where I go. That's my default mode, um, in my safety zone. But um, I just find that uh, that when you when you're working with actors. You've got to cast it right. Because if you don't cast it right, you can't direct the actor into the character you should have cast better. It doesn't work that way. You have to cast out of the gate right. And then, as we all know, our job is ha that part of our job is 50% complete. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I, uh, I know I need to wrap it up. I, I hope that this film... Uh, reaches such a hugely wide audience because I think it's so beautiful, well done, immensely uh, important, and and important to keep alive right now. And you did a great, you know, a great thing by giving yourself to it in in the midst of what I'm sure you're so busy <laughs> making posting. I, I, ho I hope so. I Does hope so too. All right. So I think that's it. Uh, thank you well, so much for having so me. Much, thank you for being thank here. You. Thank you. Lucky audience. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from director Steven Spielberg, check out our very first episode, which features Mr. Spielberg discussing his film Bridge of Spies with director Martin Scorsese. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.